Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, Michael, thank you again for coming. <laughs> so, yeah, enjoy. It's so strange to look around. So, good evening. <clears throat> Um, who has a cell phone with them tonight? <laughs> Is it in here or out there? Okay, so everybody get your phone and turn it on. Yeah, like turn the ringer on. And then um, <clears throat> uh, take the volume of the ringer and turn it all the way up. <laughs> uh, so the topic of uh, our evening tonight is um, Stabilizing. <laughs> so the, the topic tonight is stabilizing our attention uh, in an age where all of these technologies that uh, all these technologies that we have with us all the time, usually right against our body, uh, are actually interruption technologies. They're constantly asking us. Uh, to divert our attention. So I thought it would only be appropriate if we kept them on tonight so we can uh, practice with them. Uh, what do you think? Is this, yeah, okay. No. No. Yeah. Um, it also means I didn't have to write my notes out on paper. Uh, for, first, uh, let me say It's overwhelming to sit down here and see so many people that I know. So I wish I could uh, bow to each person, hug each person. Um, there's always a dynamic where uh, the person who's uh, receiving can say that they're very grateful and thank you and everything. But whenever the person at the front of the room is at the front of the room, it's always harder to 
say that they're grateful for <laughs> being able to come here. But I am. It's been so many years, and so it's very special to be here with many of you. I've been uh, reading a book by a reclusive uh, writer named John Berger. Uh, some of you may know his, his work. I'm sure it's translated uh, into Danish. Uh, he wrote a book in 1972 that was very famous called um, Ways of Seeing, uh, about looking at art. And uh, about a decade later, he wrote another book that I've been reading called The Shape of a Pocket. And it's a book about the relationship between uh, artists and their art. Uh, about the relationship between a painter and the model. <laughs> Don't shut it off, it's okay. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a really important book because um, most people these days, you know, maybe not in this room, but a lot of people, especially in government, you know, they think art is just a waste of tax money and um, uh, not good for people to be focused on right now in this age of austerity. Um, but uh, I don't know about you, but I really wish that uh, the core value in society could be something other than money for a change. Does anybody ever have this feeling in, in life? Like, could my day revolve around something other than money? Um, so anyways, uh, that's what this book is about. Let me read to you um, <clears throat> a quote. Did I tell you what the name of the book was? It's called The Shape of a Pocket. The pocket in question is a small pocket of resistance. A pocket is formed when two or more people come together in agreement. The resistance is against the inhumanity of the new world economic order. Let me read it again. The pocket in question, can you picture two things coming together to make a pocket? The pocket in question is a small pocket of resistance. A pocket is formed when two or more people come together in agreement. The resistance is against the inhumanity of the new world economic order. So, uh, why do we love Van Gogh or Frida Kahlo or so many uh, artists? Because uh, we appreciate how when we look at one of their paintings, painting is just one example, or we hear music, we feel the artist's relationship to what they're involved in. We feel their relationship come through and it touches us somehow. And this is the beautiful thing about having a direct relationship with something. When you have a direct relationship with something or somebody, you form a pocket. Every time I think of this word pocket, I always think of like, like when two lovers come together and their bodies come together. All of you are yogis, so you never do this. <laughs> Everyone else out there, except for Lou. <laughs> Um, when, when bodies come together, you know, they never touch completely. 
there's always lots of pockets uh, between them, yeah, lots of space. And even if you're with someone and you feel like two people become one person, which is so beautiful, actually, it never really is true. Never really actually become one thing. But together, you become something that resists the stream of momentum in the culture that right now seems to want to shut down everything creative, everything that's intimate. And it does this by uh, seducing us into placing our attention, uh, fragmenting our attention. And the more we fragment our attention, the more uh, we give up to the status quo, and the more we lose that pocket of resistance. So I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't talk about technology as a neuroscientist. And um, I'm not a clinical researcher, so I can't tell you the exact effect of uh, technology on our brains and on our societies, because I'm not a sociologist either. Um, but uh, my interest is how we can live uh, culturally in a way that uh, wakes us up. This is my interest. And simultaneously, I feel like when we can build a culture of awakening, uh, we create a culture that's based on values that are different than just the values of a growth economy. More money all the time. More productivity, more consumption. And most people who come to this practice uh, that we're in, which is basically all of you, including me, uh, we need healing. That's a ringtone. Uh, we want to live our lives more deeply, uh, not wandering anymore. We want to be part of something greater. We want to feel like our life is connected to something bigger than either money or just uh, the story of me. We want to live more like a river, part of something flowing, and less like a raindrop which just sits there all alone and evaporates. Um, so we need to learn uh, how to be with our suffering and how to be with the suffering of others. We need to learn how to transform suffering and transform the suffering of others. And also we need to return again to the part of us that's creative that gets shut down by focusing on uh, distractions. Our creativity also gets shut down by focusing on ourselves. And our creativity also gets shut down by focusing all the time on money. <laughs> <laughs> there are big uh, structural blocks of suffering which I want to talk about. But I also want to remind us here that there's also very small little kinds of suffering that most of us deal with every day. The small little distractions, the small annoyances, the small aversions that uh, exhaust us at the end of the day when we don't know how to work with them. The ones that make you feel tired right now when you're sitting here.
So, uh, we all need a practice. This is my mission. <laughs> There's a Zen story about a guy on a horse, and the horse is galloping really fast, and he's passing a crossroads, and uh, someone yells at him, Hey, where are you going? And he says, I don't know, ask the horse. <laughs> this is what it feels like uh, to be in the digital era, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but in the last six years, I feel like I've changed. I feel like my brain is changing. I feel like how I pay attention is, training, is changing. And I'm somebody who's trained in meditation my whole life, pretty much, like full-time for at least half of my life. And I can feel this change happening. And so I think it's important not to get caught in the paradigm of pro-technology or anti-technology. The only time a culture is like debating pro-technology and anti-technology is when they don't understand technology. But when you go deeper and you start to look into technology, uh, it's here to stay. And it's really great. But our relationship with it needs to change. And every time a technology comes into a culture, it changes people's brains. But the question these days seems to be not, are we changing or are, is our brain changing? But like, do we want to be changing the way that we're changing? So how many times did you check your messages between the time you left work today or the time you left the house, and the time you came here to the talk? Uh, don't, don't answer that, I don't want to know. <laughs> and when was the last time that you really had a break from your phone or your email? It's interesting, I teach silent retreats, and one of the things that I hear more and more at the end of retreats that I hadn't heard before is, wow, it was so nice to not be connected to the internet. And a lot of people are surprised of this kind of digital detox that they go through, not being connected to their phones and their emails for a week. So every day uh, we are overwhelmed with uh, facts and also lots of pseudo-facts. Um, according to a study done in 2011, on a typical day, people in Western countries take in an equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information every day. This is five times as much as we read in 1986. For every hour of YouTube that you watch, 6,000 hours are being uploaded. Just think about that. You watch one show or one something on YouTube, if you can even handle watching for an hour. They binge watching for an hour. In that hour, 6,000 more hours have been uploaded. So if you feel overwhelmed, it's not just you. Every time you check your status on Facebook, every time you check a message, every time you look up a new page on the internet, every single time, your body, your brain has to compete with resources in your body. 
So every time a new screen comes up, your brain has to reset to that screen. And then another new screen comes up, you have to reset to that, which burns a tremendous amount of glucose. Not only that, we can't stop. I have a friend who said recently, whenever I'm cooking or running, I'm always listening to a podcast about cooking or running. <laughs> How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? So there was a recent study done in the UK that suggests that for every email you have in your inbox that goes unanswered, you lose 10 points of your IQ. <laughs> because you're thinking about all these unanswered uh, emails. And some of you might know, I think it's April 30th, I don't know if they have it here, but it started in the US this year. They, are, they created a national inbox forgiveness day. <laughs> I think it's, it's April 15th or April 30th or something. You, you, can, you can Google it right now, actually, and check. And on that day, you just take your entire inbox and you just delete it. <laughs> Globally, more people have access to the internet than to toilets. And do you ever stop and think, a company created this. Companies created this. I'm actually involved in the production of a product that I'm helping to refine. So every time, so for those of you who are on Instagram or Twitter, every time you take a photo on Instagram um, and people like your photo, then you feel good about that. They like your photo. Uh -huh. So then it makes you want to take another picture. But then there's different technology. So you can actually add a new filter. And you think, oh, I'm so creative. But really, it's the technology <laughs> that's actually doing all this. And then, and then the, the more you do it, the more likes you get, which satisfies your own need for likes. But not only that, the company's stock goes up. So you should think about this every time you take a picture on Instagram. Take a picture and think, oh, stock's doing well. <laughs> and it seems like our patience around what we do on the internet is decreasing also. Another study I was reading said that a one second delay in page load time, so your page is coming up, for every second that the page is delayed, um, it ends up getting 11% fewer views. And a 16% a 16 decrease in customer satisfaction. That's one second. And having said all that, I love technology. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. I have an email account, of course, which everyone tells me is not cool anymore. Um, and my favorite thing about the internet is before Facebook, the internet was really just a network of information. But post-Facebook, maybe that eventually we'll have this term, like there was like BC, 
AD <laughs> before Facebook, post Facebook. People will say I'm postmodern, and you can say I'm post Facebook. Um, so post Facebook, though, it seems what's happened is we've gone from this 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 sense of an information network to a social network. And that part of technology to me is amazing. The way people can organize, the way people can build alliances, the way people can gather information through other people, to me is tremendous. And I think Instagram's really cool. Um, but there's also a great illusion at the center of the whole thing which is that uh, there's no such thing as multitasking. Multitasking has a real cognitive cost. We think we're doing many things all at once. Don't you? Yeah. Apparently, you can do three or four things at once. Like you can drive a car, listen to the radio, and uh, pay attention to whether your kid's choking on their carrot in the back seat. That's about it. Or you can play drums and sing. But um, what's really happening in the brain in what we call multitasking is that we're switching from one task to another. And every time you're switching from one task to another, uh, cortisol, which is the stress hormone in your brain, uh, shoots up. So there's an increase of stress. And when this goes on for a long time and you're burning up a lot of sugar, it's a lot like driving a car in first gear at a very high RPM for a long time. Doing many things at once and not doing any of them very well. And yet, this is what we do when we're trying to work and return emails at the same time. There's a wonderful story I heard of a <clears throat> from a neuroscientist about he was invited to go to his son's school because it was the day of the year where you bring your parent in and your parent describes their occupation, what they do for a living. Uh, so this kid brought his father in, who's a neuroscientist, uh, to the front of the room and they said, what does your father do for a living? And he said, uh, he returns emails. <laughs> And those of you who communicate with people younger than you probably know that email is disappearing as the primary mode of communication, and it's texting. Um, the etiquette around texting is that when people text with each other, it's a little bit worse than your inbox, which is there's the automatic etiquette that you should respond to the text. There's the sense that, oh, I got a text, I have to respond even with a thank you or an emoticon or whatever. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there's a neural addiction that's happening, but then when you lay the etiquette of returning messages on top of that, there also seems to be a social addiction that's laid on top of that. And those two things are inseparable. Um, but the paradox of the whole thing is that the best experiences we have in life are never on a screen. Your best experiences are not digital experiences. 
None of them have been. You may have discovered cool things, you may have found music that you really like, uh, but this, the, our deeper experiences of life don't happen on a screen. And also, if we're on the screen or plugged in all the time, there's no time for reverie. There's no time to get lost. There's no time to bump into somebody in an unexpected way. Because we're working for the big machine called money. <laughs> Somebody told me that soon a sign of uh, the, uh, the new upper class will be that the division between the upper class, the, the, the higher upper class and the regular upper class, I don't know what you call those classes, um, will be whether you're online or not. Okay. So the wealthy elite will be completely offline. And all of us will be online. <laughs> Can you picture that? That doesn't seem far away. Because in a way, that's what we all crave, isn't it? It's like, I wish somebody else was returning all those emails, all those messages. So, every morning <clears throat> I wake up and uh, I sit down on my cushion, just like this, and I uh, get my gaze really quiet and I follow my breathing. And I've been doing this for a long time, every day. And when I travel, uh, first thing I do when I go somewhere is I sit down and even if I just have five minutes, I'll just find my breathing. And uh, I need this uh, for my own sanity. Uh, because um, if I don't have the breath to come to, then I very quickly start believing that everything I think is actually reality. And I also notice that when I'm unable to stay with my breathing during the day, my attention is really fragmented. And when my attention is very fragmented, I just come back to my breathing and my attention comes back into this space and this time. And I notice that when my attention is very fragmented, my emotions are quite unstable. So somebody might say something to me and my reaction will be greater than uh, what was appropriate for the situation. I also notice when I pay attention to my breath that um, even if I get a little bit distracted and I come back to my breathing, <clears throat> uh, when I come back to my breath, my body settles down, calms down. My nervous system down-regulates, usually in just five or ten minutes. It's so important that we can pay attention to what's happening in our experience from moment to moment to moment to moment. But most of the time, we're just filling up, filling up. Like when you eat, you have to digest. And um, 
What's happening online these days is that we're overeating, stuffing our face, but we're not digesting. You can't possibly digest so many images in a day. How's that possible? Or do you even want to? So we're overstuffed, overstuffing ourselves. And the problem is, is that your body is designed to also have rest stops. You know, it's like you can get stressed, but then you have to drop down and rest. And you can get stressed again, it's okay. We're designed to get stressed. And then you have to drop down and have this rest stop. But what happens for most of us is you're at work, you're having a really busy day, you're kind of stressed out, it's time to have a rest, what do you do? You go look at porn. <laughs> and any kind of porn, there's like cooking porn, there's house renovation porn. Um, for the past couple of years, I was uh, fix fixing a motorcycle. And there's like a whole world of motorcycle porn out there. You can, you can have one year of one motorcycle, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of websites. And when you watch the website, it starts off like, how do I fix this? And it ends up being, I want that. I want that. So, so we're over-aroused. We don't have these uh, deeper dips. And so uh, we're also not resting. So we have this level of hyper-arousal all the time. And then you go online to kind of chill out from that, but you don't really chill out from that. So when your attention's doing this, your nervous system's doing this, behind the scenes, your emotional life is a disaster. Because you can't, you can't actually be present with what you're feeling. You don't have any emotional intelligence. And if you don't know what you're feeling, you don't know what you need. You don't know how to communicate what you need. You don't know what other people need because you can't use your body as a kind of like a radar for what's going on for somebody else. You can't feel what's going on for someone else. Your empathy declines. And then when I travel and teach and I talk to people who are of a generation younger than me, it seems the thing people are craving is uh, depth. That's what they crave. So you talk to somebody who's younger than 22. And it's interesting uh, what people say over and over again is they want something that has depth. They're really interested in a spirituality that has a practice associated with it and totally disinterested in any kind of spirituality that comes with any authoritative system. So to me, this is really good news. So I could go on about what's happening and pretty much everything I've said so far in this talk, uh, you know, you know all this. Um, but what I'd like to suggest is there's some practices that we can undertake 
really practical uh, tasks that we can undertake to build this pocket of resistance. So uh, the rest of the talk, I'm going to offer you some practices that you can do at home, that I hope you do at home. Uh, the first practice is called the three T's. You, you can uh, Twitter this now. <laughs> so um, the first practice is every day you should have time for time. So every day to make time in your schedule to have time. Just time, where you have a sense of time. Not a sense of time spinning so fast and you've got 40 things to do, but you know that experience where you just stop and you're walking and your mind's thinking, and then after a while you just kind of settle and you're just sort of aware of time. Every day we need to have this experience of time. Uh, number two, this is especially for those of you with families, every day to have experience, uh, time for talking. So the first one is time for time, second one is time for talking. Uh, not sitting down saying, uh, we need to have a talk, <laughs> that's not about money. <laughs> One of the highlights of my year, this year, was uh, a few months ago, I was uh, supposed to take a flight that was early in the morning. And so uh, I live on an island, and if the flights are after 10 a.m., it's no problem, I can get to the airport. But if they're before 10 a.m., I have to stay in a hotel the night before. And uh, we had some errands to do in the town. So uh, Karina, my wife, and I said, why don't we just stay in the hotel together? And then she'll take my son home in the morning and I'll go fly. Oh, this is such a good idea. So uh, we got a hotel room together and um, my son didn't nap that day. Has anyone had this experience? <laughs> Does this happen in Copenhagen? In Copenhagen, all the kids are sleeping in strollers outside the shops. <laughs> so anyways... Uh, he didn't have his nap, so we got to the hotel room, he jumped on the bed for a while, and then uh, he fell asleep. Not jumping, like he stopped and he fell asleep. Could you imagine that? He was jumping and he just fell asleep. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Every parent would have a trampoline <laughs> in their room. <laughs> so um, anyways, he fell asleep, and uh, so we were in the hotel, and it was just us, hotel room. So we started talking. And, and it was one of those, like, you ever have phases in your relationship where there's no problems? Yeah, we were, it was like that kind of day. <laughs> and so we just sat and we talked all night till like 11 o'clock at night. Hours and hours and hours. It was so beautiful. And we talked about things we hadn't talked about and like things we've never talked about and like we kind of had a pillow fight and jokes and it was like the highlight of my year. And who would know that that kind of togetherness creates so much happiness, so much joy? To have time where time can unfold and there can be talking with someone that's not 
trying to get something out of them or trying to resolve a problem or trying to be seen or trying to hide or trying to make sure you look right or all the dynamics in talking. So that's number two, time for talking. And number three is time for touch. So time for touch could be anything from uh, sex to like wrestling with kids. You don't have to have your own kids to wrestle with kids. <laughs> uh, go find your neighbor's kids and go wrestle with them. Actually, if you showed up right after dinner to your neighbor's house and you just said, I'm here to wrestle. <laughs> Yeah, the parents would just hand the kids to you, even if they've never met you. Uh, number, uh, okay, that was three. Fourth practice I learned from my friend Matthew Remsky, who taught this to me, but I realized recently, uh, living with him, that he doesn't actually practice this. <laughs> <laughs> which is after dinner, a no screen time. Yeah. So after dinner, no screen time. Yeah. Um, when I was doing some research for the, this talk, one of the things I found very interesting was that um, in the United States, um, adolescents... So that's pretty much like any age after about nine or ten. Um, adolescents do a third of their texting after lights go out. So after the whole family's gone to sleep, that's when a third of the texting happens during the day. It's interesting. So when we say um, time off, from the screen, if you have teenagers or almost teenagers. I'm making this up now because I don't have teenagers. I don't know what it's like to work with that species yet. Um, but it might be really important to create an environment. I'd say this is the same with drug use, where you don't make the kid feel like they have to do technology from a place of hiding. I won't say any more of that because I don't know how to do that, but is there a way to create a household's relationship with technology where the kids don't feel like they have to sneak off and use their technology because it's not allowed? Because that will instill pretty bad technology habits, like being on a screen right before you go to sleep and then not being able to fall asleep. Um, Are we on number five? Mm -hmm. I didn't number these, so I'm just numbering them now. Number five is have a practice. To stop yourself when screen sucking happens. Do you know what screen sucking is? Mm -hmm. What's screen sucking? Someone want to try and define it? Well, you look and look and you can't stop. You can't stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is anybody here on Netflix? 
I just got. I just went on Netflix for the first time. Believe it or not. And um, on Netflix, when you watch a television show, at the end of the show, it starts loading the next episode, and it starts counting down from eight seconds, going eight. Seven, six, and if you don't do anything, and of course you don't do anything, the next episode comes on. Yeah. So you need a practice to be able to stop and and press the space bar. Space, space. Next, um, unsubscribe to every email list you're on that you don't love. So basically, if your email's not coming from michaelstoneteaching.com. <laughs> I'll say it again, michaelstoneteaching.com. <laughs> then you should unsubscribe. Yeah. So if you have emails coming from your workplace or ones that say Kino, <laughs> yeah, just unsubscribe to those. Uh, here's the second last one. Um, <clears throat> if you have uh, kids, especially uh, kids who have phones, um, you should learn their etiquette around phone usage and learn uh, the vocabulary that they use. Learn about their internet world. Learn about their digital world. Because if you come from the perspective of this generation, you know what I'm talking about. We say things like, don't text at the table, or, but I mean, all of us have seen the scene of you know six girls standing on a corner texting, and that's how they're together or sitting on a couch together, all on the phone, all texting. And that's how they are together. So if you come at it like, oh, there's a certain way you should be that's not that, um, you're only going to get met with resistance. So it's important to be really tuned in to the technological world of your kids um, so that you can try and speak to them or speak with them more at that level rather than um, as someone who's dating themselves as they speak. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last one is um, every day you should find 10 minutes where you can sit still and follow your breathing. When you inhale, just to feel that you're inhaling. And when you exhale, to feel that you're exhaling. And then to try and carry that with you through the day. To breathe through your nose without uh, deepening your breath. So just to have really natural breaths through your nose all day. For example, You can do this when you're communicating with people. You can, uh, when you're talking with people, you can breathe through your nose. Try doing that. And see, you might think, oh yeah, I do that all the time. Just try it. Mm -hmm. And, And tomorrow, let me know how it went.
Um, when you're not in tune with your breath, you're more inclined to distraction. And when you're distracted, you get worried more easily. And um, distractions make it hard to have intimate connection. Do you know that feeling when you call someone and you're talking to them on the phone and you can tell they're online? And you say, are you checking your emails? And they say, no. (laughs) So distraction makes it harder for intimate connection. And when you can't connect with other people intimately, disconnection happens. And disconnection with someone you care about increases worry. And when you're worried, you're prone to ruminating. And when you're ruminating, you reinforce the loops of distraction. And when you reinforce the loops of distraction, this intensifies the disconnection. And then when you intensify the disconnection, you intensify the worry. But every day, if you just sit down and know how to find your breathing, you learn how to trust something that's more embodied and more anchored than just your worry or your rumination or your distraction. And attention creates the conditions for love. It creates the conditions for empathy. Think about somebody who's suffering. What do they want most? Your attention, someone's attention. When our attention is uh, stable, we know how to create boundaries for ourselves. When our attention is fragmented and we're worrying a lot, we're not very good with having boundaries. And if you're a romantic person, I'm a romantic person. It's not cool to be a romantic person and a yogi, but anyways. Uh, If you're a romantic person, then uh, the thing that drives romance is attention. than uh, being present with uh, people you love when times are bad is being present with people that you love when times are good. And so notice if when times are good we pick up a piece of technology. We check our inbox. We go play a video game. When there's a possibility for something to unfold, 
people really need to feel that the person that they love thinks very highly of them and that is interested in what they're interested in. So if you can't keep your attention stable, then the person who you're in relationship with, over time, they become less able to feel how you're interested in what they're interested in. Interested in who they are. And if two people are distracted all the time, can you imagine how that plays out? Who's in relationship with who? Nobody knows. The relationship is just a good idea. On Instagram. And then we can't tolerate certain mental states. And of course, I think as we all know, the state that most of us have the hardest time tolerating these days is boredom. We don't allow ourselves to feel bored. And certainly, young people have a very hard time being bored because they don't see the adults modeling boredom. You know, if you have a teenager who doesn't see their parents ever being bored, how are they going to know how to internalize boredom? It's not going to be okay. My mother is a, a, she's retired now, but she was a school teacher and she used to always complain in the past few years that when she was doing substitute teaching that the kids were coming in with their headphones on. And she'd say to them, turn off the music. And they'd say, I'm not listening to anything. They just had the headphones in still. You do that? Maybe she was teaching your class. So, so it's interesting because maybe, maybe what arises in the absence of content coming in through the ear becomes over time threatening because we haven't been to boredom for a long time, maybe. So over time, if we haven't been there and we don't know that mental state, maybe it becomes a little scary for us to go into that mental state. Because what does boredom feel like? Really boring. <laughs> so if you keep the headphones in, you stay plugged into the matrix. And that's not the psychological illness of a teenage kid. That's the psychological ill of a consumer culture that's always online. It used to be that you did your shopping during the day and you go home and the stores are closed. It's not like that anymore. Can I tell you an embarrassing story that happened to me? <laughs> Last night, I had to buy a flight to go from uh, my home to, to London. And uh, there's a sale now, so I kept thinking about it all day. I had to buy this flight. So I was really tired before sleep last night. Um, so I, I, I was reading. I got about, so I, I went online, I bought the flight, um, closed my computer, and went to sleep. Um, and then I had a deep sleep this morning. I woke up. 
And uh, I was making breakfast and I thought, oh God, I've got to buy that flight, that ticket to London. So I went online. <laughs> and it was a little bit, and I was like, it's more expensive than I looked at it last night, but I guess this is the price now. And so I bought the ticket. <laughs> and then I hadn't checked my emails yet. So then uh, I ate breakfast, and after breakfast I checked my emails, and then I had two emails from the the uh, <laughs> from Air Canada, basically, and like I bought one ticket last night and one ticket this morning. So, anyways, I called them to com to explain. I was going to say to complain. <laughs> and she said that it was okay. It happens all the time. <laughs> I want to read you uh, a, um, <clears throat> a press release from the uh, German uh, car and, and truck maker um, um, Daimler. Daimler? How do you say it? Daimler. 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 Yeah. Uh, so th this is from a press release. Some of you may know that they announced this year that all managers, middle and upper managers, over 100,000 of them, um, are now going to have all their incoming emails automatically deleted when they're on holiday. The sender is notified, they say, by the mail on holiday assistant <laughs> that the email has not been received and they are invited to contact a nominated substitute instead. Employees can now return from their summer vacation to an empty inbox. Employees should relax on holiday and not read work-related emails, says Wilford Porth, board member for Human Resources. With mail on holiday, that's a quote, mail on holiday, they start back after the holidays with a clean desk. There's no traffic jam in their inbox. It is an emotional relief. So now I just want to say a couple positive things about what I see happening with uh, technology. Then we'll have a little break, and then we can have a discussion. Um, so some paradoxes that I see. The first paradox is with Instagram, is maybe the kind of do-it-yourself individualistic culture that's forming among the millennial generation is actually teaching us something about the core Buddhist teaching of uh, not self or emptiness, which is that we can construct ourselves in different ways all the time. One of the interesting things about Instagram or any of these, Instagram is a placeholder for all those kinds of um, apps is that you can create a version of yourself to project into the world in any way that you want. When you put a tattoo on your body, it's there all the time. Yeah. When you have a digital image representing you, you can change it at any time. 
And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's just a digital representation of this deeper truth, which is that we don't actually exist. That we are stories. We're made up of stories. We're made up of images. And they're all stuck together with clinging and desire. And one of the interesting things, for example, for a woman who's been told that they should look a certain way, is that they can actually take uh, you know, representational apps like Instagram, and they can represent themselves however they want to represent themselves. And you could argue, yes, maybe for the majority of people, they're just representing themselves the way fashion magazines do. But for many people, they're not. And they're using it as a creative tool to be who they want to be, when they want to be, how they want to be, not being defined in one profile. And actually, maybe this is a really healthy thing. The other paradox that I find really interesting is uh, I'm an avid reader. And when you look at best-selling books that are being produced right now, they're huge. Has anybody noticed this? So it started with Murakami's IQ84 a few years ago. I was lugging this thing to Thailand. Okay, It's a thousand pages. Uh, still on the bestseller book is Goldfinch by Miriam Tart, I think is her name. It's Donna. It's almost a thousand pages. Carl yeah. um, uh, Ove Nosgaard, whose uh, book My Struggle, apparently in some countries you're not even allowed to bring to work anymore, um, uh, is six volumes. And each volume is around 600 words. I can't do the math. 25 years ago, everybody said, we would not be reading novels in the future. But actually, it's going the other way. Everyone complains they don't have enough time, and every new Stephen King novel is 1,000 pages. That's more, that's you know, three times the amount of a long novel when I was a kid. Um, television shows. Is anybody watching television these days? Okay. So I can't speak about Danish shows, but Breaking Bad, uh, The Wire, uh, Downtown Abbey, right? These are shows that have really, really long season arcs that people are watching in one shot. The narratives have much more subtlety than a previous generation of television shows. And their point is, they're written like novels for a very engaged viewer. So there's this paradox where on the one hand, we seem to be super distracted. We seem to only be able to look at things for two seconds. And on the other hand, we're craving meaning, we're craving depth, and we're craving books and shows that ask much more from the viewer than television shows have in the past. Certainly novels maybe have always asked a lot from a reader, but a thousand pages, this many bestsellers every year, it seems like to have a bestseller, your book has to be bigger. We could make American jokes, but we won't. So when you look at a character like Don Draper, 
he seems to be written in a way that's asking the viewer to get involved in his character and really watch it over time. I think this is actually a new phenomenon. When I was a kid, I watched Leave It to Beaver, and like, <laughs> there's not much that really happens for a character. <laughs> the other thing is that um, the people most likely to buy a novel right now, according to new publishing statistics, are not who you think. They're 18 to 24 year olds are buying 68% of the novels in the United States. I'm gonna say that again. For those of you who like poo poo the digital generation, 18 to 24 year olds are buying 68% of the novels at your bookstore, at a bookstore in the United States. In Denmark, it's probably more. <clears throat> um, so let me end by telling you a story. <clears throat> Once upon a time. I'm going to tell you the whole Mad Men season. <laughs> Because you're engaged, so we can be here now for a thousand more pages. Um, there's a story about a scholar who came to visit a Zen teacher and said to him, uh, my mind is a mess. Um, I need to work with my mind. Has anybody ever felt like they wanted to say this to somebody? <laughs> and uh, so the teacher said, come sit down with me and have some tea. So they arranged themselves on the floor, and the teacher picked up the teapot, and then looked at the student right in the eye and started pouring the tea into his cup. And then when the cup was full, he just kept pouring and pouring and pouring until they were both just soaked. Zaputons were soaked. Tea was empty. Um, and then he said to the student, that's what you're doing with your mind. This is what we're doing. We're stuffing our face. We're stuffing our eyes. We're stuffing our ears. And then when you do that, uh, you miss how there's a seed in every person of understanding. Uh, there's a seed in every person of compassion. Uh, there's a seed of love in every person. And when you're out there all the time, then uh, you never water that seed. Or maybe you actually start to forget the conditions that are needed for that seed to flourish. You forget. You're so busy with Don Draper. But you forget about the seed that's right there all the time. So, I love technology. It's allowed me to be here. It allows me to stay connected with many of you. And some of you came to this practice because you connected with it first online or a podcast or An elderly person I know just got a new iWatch because uh, 
it can tell when you fall. So now she has the latest iWatch. And she doesn't know how to use anything. Can't check emails, can't do messages, nothing. But she just wears it because um, if she falls, it notifies her family. But we also have to ask, uh, do all the changes that the digital age are bringing on, uh, are all the changes changing us in ways that we want? And not to forget that we have some control. And we have some practices we can use so we can determine how we want to relate to these changes. So that we can develop this pocket of resistance. So, thank you. Thank you.